Good friends, it is wonderful to have you with us uh, here at church on Sunday. Amazing, isn't it, that there are some of us who can still gather. Uh, a welcome as well to those 20 or 30 or so of you who are currently streaming with us online as well. We're sorry not to have you with us in our presence, but a thank you to those of you who aren't here because you care about those who are. Uh, for those particularly of you who might be sick, our prayers are with you. Uh, we do hope that you'll be recovering quickly and soon. Let us know. Later on, we'll have a QR code will pop up on the screen. Let us know if there's something we can be doing to help you uh, as you're in isolation, for those of you who might be, uh, but very encouraged by those who are still able to be with us as well. And friends, it'd be really handy for me and for you if we had open before us that passage that Janice read to us from uh, Jonah chapter 2. We're going to be having a look at that together today. It's our second week uh, in Jonah, uh, and it'd be very handy to have it there, to be able to glance at uh, and to follow along as we work our way through it together. Well, it was a, a particularly triumphant New Year's Eve this year just gone past, this New Year's Eve just gone past, for at least one of the kids uh, in the Frederick household. As they, sec uh, they proudly announced the successful realisation of their 2021 New Year's resolution. It had been their whole year, and they announced to the family that they had successfully achieved what they would resolved to achieve. A resolution to go an entire year without throwing up, without vomiting. <laughs> yes, us Fredericks, we aim high. Um, while I applauded my son's ability to successfully carry through a year-long resolution, and can empathise with him with that desire to avoid undergoing such an experience. The truth is that those paralysing spasms of the gut, so to speak, are designed to expel that which is harmful and noxious to us, that which we find intolerable, unable to stomach. And it's actually this potent idea, not, uh, not particularly a, a particularly pleasant image, uh, that we have here in today's passage, but it's this potent image of expelling that which is noxious, noxious or unpalatable that describes God's own response to toxic spirituality in today's passage, that describes God's own response to a spirituality that he can't stomach, that he finds intolerable. Uh, in the opening chapters of Jonah, we're actually presented with two various images of what it might look like to pray. We see at the very end of chapter 1, which we'll glance back at in a moment, the prayers of the pagan sailors. You might remember from last week, as they were anxious about the boat sinking, uh, Jonah is fleeing, disobeying God, Jonah the prophet is running away from God, God has sent a storm on the ship that Jonah is using as a getaway, and in the midst of this storm, the pagan sailors of that ship, they cry out in prayer. But then we have, in contrast, a prayer that we'll look at in more detail today. That is the prayer of the prophet, the prayer of the prophet Jonah. Two prayers that we'll see God responds to pretty differently, actually. Maybe in not ways we would have expected. Now, let's have a look first, just a bit of a recap of last week, of the prayer that was offered up by the pagan sailors. Uh, you might recall from last week that when the storm first hit Jonah's runaway ship the pagan sailors unsuccessfully petitioned or prayed to their own little g gods, the idols, the false gods that they worshipped. 
But when they were confronted with the impotence of their own prayers, for the storm continues to surge, not being impacted at all by the, the prayers to their own pagan gods, the sailors had desperately turned to Jonah, the prophet, to ask him, who is it that we should be praying to, to get this storm to stop, to spare our lives? And Jonah refused to pray on their behalf. He refused to instruct them how they should pray. He basically just left the pagans to try and figure out how to pray to God on their own. Let's remind ourselves how those pagans ended up praying in the midst of that chaos of a sinking ship. If you've got your Bibles there, glance back with me to chapter 1, verse 14. Chapter 1, verse 14. And we reminded there of exactly how it was that these pagans reached out to God in prayer. Then we, we read, Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man, for taking Jonah's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, with the raging, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. At first glance, it's a pretty dead simple prayer that the pagans offer up, isn't it? Lord, spare us, don't hold this against us. But actually there's a rich theology to the way in which these pagans are responding to God in the midst of this crisis. In fact, the prayer that the pagans offer up to God and the way in which they think sounds very much like the kind of prayers and response to God that we find in the Psalms. Let me read to you this little snippet from Psalm 135. You might notice, it's up there on the screen, some of the similarities to how the pagans are thinking. The psalmist writes, I know that the Lord is great, that our God is greater than all the little g gods. The Lord does whatever, he ple whatever pleases him. They were the exact words of the sailors, weren't they? In the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and their depths. See, just as the psalmist declares, the pagans also recognise that Jonah's God is greater than all their so-called little g-gods. Just as the psalmist declares here, so have the sailors come to believe that Jonah's God controls everything whether it be in the very depths of the sea or on the land. Such is the power of Jonah's God that he does as he pleases in heaven and on earth. And that's exactly the theology that even these pagan sailors confess in their tension-filled, chaotic moment on that sinking ship. And so they pray that this God who they barely even know might save them, might have mercy on them, and lo and behold, God answers the prayer of these pagans just as they had prayed it. Actually, we shouldn't be too surprised that God does listen to the prayer of these pagans. Actually, back in 1 Kings chapter 8, the passage will pop up on the screen, right when the, the, the temple of Israel was being dedicated the temple had just been completed, it was the grand opening of the temple, and at the grand opening of Israel's temple, King Solomon had prayed these words at the opening. He had prayed, 
even for the foreigner who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, and will come and pray towards this temple, may you hear in heaven and act according to all the foreigner asks of you. Then all the people on earth will know your name to fear you as your people Israel do. Now, while we're not told that the pagans actually pray towards the temple, they wouldn't have known to. Jonah wasn't much help to them. He didn't really offer them any advice or direction. Yet these foreigners on the ship, the sailors, do pray. And God does hear and answer their prayer. And the pagans do respond, we read, by fearing the God of Israel, by fearing the Lord, just as Solomon had prayed once that they might do. God's ear is always attentive to the cries of those who come to him for mercy, even in the response to the prayers of those who barely know him, like these pagan sailors. Now, at the same time as these pagan sailors are having their prayers answered for them, Jonah is fast sinking to the bottom of the ocean, having himself chosen death by drowning rather than turning back humbly to God to seek God's mercy from him. You might remember the last week that it was Jonah's direction that he should be thrown over the side of the ship. It was Jonah's call that had led to him sinking to the depths of the ocean. So far in this passage in in the book of Jonah, Jonah has refused to pray at all. He didn't pray at any point during the storm. He didn't pray even as he's getting thrown overboard from the ship. Even as the prophet's life is ebbing away below the waves of the sea, he still refuses to pray. It's only once Jonah finds himself already safely inside the belly of this giant fish that God has provided to swallow him, it's only then that he suddenly finds the motivation and the composure to write what is a perfectly structured, rhyming, poetic psalm of prayer. It's a pretty impressive prayer, isn't it? Especially for someone who's just been swallowed by an almighty fish. It's a pretty well-crafted piece of writing. Uh, How about we read it again? We'll read the whole prayer that Jonah offers up from within the belly of the fish. It's there for us in uh, chapter 2, verse 2. I think better to read the whole prayer in one go. And I'd love you just to think, as we read through it once again, what is Jonah's prayer, do you think, revealing about his own heart at this point? What What does Jonah's prayer reveal about what's going on in his own head and heart as he prays it? He writes, In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols 
turn away from God's love for them, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. While technically and poetically speaking, Jonah's is an impressive prayer, I still think there's something just a little bit off about this fine-sounding prayer that Jonah offers up to God, that he composes in the belly of the fish. I wonder if you've ever unknowingly taken something out of the cupboard to eat at home to prepare a meal with. You haven't looked at the use-by date on it. It's all looked perfectly fine to the eye, and as soon as you've taken that first mouthful of it or inhaled that first whiff of it, you've suddenly known that it's not going to settle well if you were to let it go all the way down to the stomach. There's something that strikes me about the nature of Jonah's prayer that has that kind of whiff to it that doesn't bode well. At the heart of it, I think Jonah's prayer is actually quite an arrogant prayer. It's, it's a self-righteous prayer. It's a prayer in which Jonah can't help but blame God, put the boot into the pagans and boast about his own religious piety. I wonder if you notice there in verse 3 that Jonah prays to God, you hurled me into the depths, all your waves swept over me. Is Jonah really blaming God on the sly for the predicament that he finds himself in? God never told anyone to throw Jonah over the side of the ship. Jonah himself said to do it, rather than turn around and go back and obey God in God's call to go to the Ninevites. It was Jonah alone who insisted on being thrown overboard. And in verse 8, Jonah prays, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you, God, with shouts of grateful praise. I will fulfill, I will make good what I have vowed to you, Jonah declares. While slandering the pagans as those who have forsaken God's love, who take it for granted, Jonah boasts about the faithfulness that he will show to God once he gets out of the fish's belly. Jonah boasts that what will set him apart from the godless pagans is his grateful appreciation of God's mercy. Jonah is boasting that what sets him apart from the pagan, the godless pagans are the sacrifices and the vows of appreciation that he promises he will yet offer to God just once he's out of the belly of the fish. Jonah's self-congratulatory prayer looks, I think, especially petty once we recall that the pagans have actually already offered to God their sacrifices and vows. Do you remember that back from chapter 1, verse 16? As soon as the, uh, the storm went silent, we read in verse 16, at this, the men, the pagan sailors, greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. While Jonah was still sinking like a stone to the bottom of the ocean, 
the pagans had already responded in perfectly appropriate way to God's mercy towards them. And yet Jonah's prayer composed in the belly of the fish is still setting himself favorably apart from those pagans who are thankless and insensible to God's kindness and God's grace. As far as we can tell, Jonah actually never delivers on the vows and the sacrifices that he promises God from within the fish. But the pagans have already delivered on that. And I actually think that the final verse of chapter 2 is supposed to hint at what God thinks of Jonah's beautifully composed but ultimately self-righteous and arrogant prayer. Read it there in verse 10 with me, right at the end of chapter 2. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Yes, it's true that there's a sense in which the vomiting up onto the dry land was the final part of God's act of saving Jonah, a salvation that Jonah actually never asked for, God just initiated and offered out of his own gracious character. No sooner has Jonah finished reciting this beautifully composed psalm in the belly of the fish, than God commands the fish to vomit him out. And I don't think it's any coincidence that the fish vomits him out just as Jonah finishes the psalm. I think we're supposed to see the fish's vomiting as reflecting what God himself thinks of Jonah's pious-sounding prayer. Uh, The word used for vomiting here is one that often, most often in the Old Testament, communicates God's disgust or displeasure with someone. Apart from a few examples in Proverbs, that's the way it's usually used. It's the word used to to, to, to describe God's revulsion at that which He finds unsavory or detestable. Uh, If we were to look back, I've got the verses there on your sheets, if you'd like to look them up at a later time. In Leviticus chapter 18 and in Leviticus chapter 20, there are several occasions in which God says He will cause the land of Israel, the nation of Israel, the land, to vomit out those Israelites who prove unfaithful like pagans. God says to them, if you behave like the pagans do, I will vomit you out of this land. And it's a similar idea found in the book of Revelation, chapter 3 as well, where Jesus says he will spit out or vomit out the lukewarm faith of the Laodicean church. Vomiting is this potent image being used to describe God's response to toxic, self-justifying spirituality, to describe God's response to a spirituality that he can't stomach, that he finds intolerable. Jesus likewise found such self-righteousness sickening, didn't he? Do you remember from the second passage that Janet read to us, the the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector? Once again, do you remember two patterns of prayer, one offered by the pious Pharisee, one offered by the godless tax collector? Do you remember that? One prayed, thank you, God. So, it it was a prayer full of praise. Thank you, God, that what I offer to you is not like what they offer to you. And yet the prayer of the tax collector was, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. He was one, the tax collector was one who feared God and God's holiness and righteousness. And we see this theme 
just threaded throughout the whole of the New Testament. Do you remember that Jesus calls his own disciples in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you? Not pray about how you are superior to those who are godless, but to pray for those who persecute you. Jesus himself, from the cross, what did he pray? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, even as they took his life. Last week, we wove into our exploration of the book of Jonah some reflections upon Summer Hill's own vision statement that you guys have had, that we've had as a church for several years, that we might be and seek others to become as well people who are transformed by Jesus. And it's worth us asking, it's worth us pausing for a moment to ask this question, whether and how the heart that we nurse towards others has actually been transformed by Jesus. Whether the reality of our own heart is reflected in the character of our prayers for other people. Prayers that God delights in, prayers that have been transformed by Jesus himself, are prayers that embrace God's mercy towards others, at least as much as they embrace God's mercy towards ourselves. Prayers that have been transformed by Jesus will be prayers that embrace God's mercy even towards the undeserving, at least as much as they embrace God's mercy towards ourselves. Uh, Even as we pray, perhaps urgently for justice in the face of wrongdoing and sin in the world, the prayer of a heart that has been transformed by God's mercy will also long for God's transforming work to bring peace and mercy to the ones who perpetrated the wrongdoing as well. Even as we pray with thanks to God when He vindicates us against false accusations that might be thrown our way because we're believers, even then the prayer of heart that has been transformed by God's mercy might petition God to bring light and grace into the darkness of those who are our accusers and slanderers. Even as we cry out in frustrated and frail prayer to God, pleading with Him to bring a speedy end to the evil and suffering that threads its way through our whole world, the prayer of a heart that has been transformed by God's mercy might also strive to praise God for the enduring patience that He is displaying towards those who don't deserve it, as He withholds and prolongs that wait before he brings his judgment and justice upon the world. Prayers that God delights in, prayers that have been transformed by Jesus' own character himself, are prayers that embrace God's mercy towards others, even undeserving others, at least as much as they are prayers that embrace God's mercy towards ourselves. And yet, of course, course, such a transformation of the heart often feels beyond us, doesn't it? To pray in a gracious and merciful way, in that kind of way, to pray in the kind of way that Jonah resented being asked to, Jonah refused to, to show God's own mercy, to mirror God's own mercy in our own hearts is a complex and 
difficult, sometimes even bitter and painful exercise. In fact, later on this year, we're going to have a short series of talks in which we'll reflect on what it is to show compassion, to offer to forgiveness, to seek reconciliation with others. We'll take them each one at a time and try and deal with some of the complexities and pain that goes along with showing each of them because they're not easy things to show. And yet, you might remember that our vision as a church is not that we might be a church of, peop- uh, a church of people who are self-realised, who transform ourselves. Our hope and our vision is that we will be a people, a community of people who have been transformed by the Lord Jesus himself. And so it's fitting that as we finish, we don't just head out for the week with a rousing call to, to toughen up and show mercy as God shows mercy, but to ask that over the year that lies ahead of us, It might be God who begins to transform our hearts and our minds so that the reflex we have when confronted with those who wrong us or grieve us might need to pray for and to seek after God's mercy for them just as much as it has been for us as well. Let's pray that that might be the case. Our dearest Father, we confess that so often the reflexes that drive and shape our own responses to others in the world around about us is that of self-justification, vengeance, bitterness, sometimes, Father, even um, revolt and, and distaste. Father, we ask that you would have mercy upon us for the impulses that we display in that kind of way. Father, we ask that you would, by the work of your spirit, take away all self-justification, every spirit of self-righteousness, that you might transform our own hearts, that they reflect the kind of heart that the Lord Jesus had, even for those who took his life. Father, we ask that you might transform our own hearts, that their impulse might be to delight in and to seek after and to long for the same mercy that you have shown to us to be shown to even those who set themselves against us. Aware of our own frailty and our own impotence in this regard, Father, we entrust these things to you and to the powerful working of your Spirit. And in the name of your Son, Amen.